The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he said to them, to him, All these I shall give to you if you prostrate yourself and worship me. At this Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan, it is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. So, I don't know if you ever wonder why or how do we stick together the readings. It's kind of weird. It's like, you know, you've got a reading from Genesis, and then St. Paul had something to say, and then you've got a psalm, and you've got this gospel. And we can walk away sometimes, I think, with what Jeff Cavins refers to as a whole heap of Catholicism in our head. It's just this kind of jumbled mess. Like, okay, well, I got a bunch of readings. I don't know how they tie together, but they're there for a reason, right? (laughs) But when the church sticks these readings together, there is actually a logic. And it's probably good if we all take time before Mass or after Mass to kind of go through them and see if we can connect the dots. Today may not be self-evident what the connection is, okay? But it's interesting, we begin, we, we just read the Gospel on Jesus being in the desert, but we begin with the book of Genesis. In creation, in the Garden of Eden. And what is the scene there? Well, we see that Satan appears and he's already... The first thing that happens when Satan appears is he begins tempting. That's what Satan does, you know. He's actually quite good at his job. I would almost consider hiring him if you could trust the guy. Uh, What he does, he does well. Anyway, Satan appears and is tempting. And the very first thing is an accusation. Did God really say that you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? And the answer, of course, is no. God never said that. In fact, God said almost the opposite. He said, you can eat of any tree you want except for one. So God basically is saying to Adam and Eve, these trees represent all the different ways that you and I can seek fulfillment in life fullness of life. And God says, I want you to live abundantly. I want you to be happy. 
and I've given you an entire world full of beautiful, wonderful things. Now the only rule here is you don't get to be God. That's the only rule. That's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. It is basically, you do not get to determine what is right and wrong. As long as you stay in your lane, and that actually might make a nice title for the homily. If you want to summarize it, just stay in your lane. As long as you stay in your lane, you will be fine. Any of you who are parents get this. You have kids. You can do whatever you want, but I really recommend, I don't want you to stick the fork in the outlet, in the power outlet, okay? Bad things will happen. And the more you say it, the more it might be attractive to one of your kids. And, and then they learn, okay? Um, but, you know, part of raising kids is we need authority. As parents, it's not like you hate your kids. It's not like you're repressing your kids and you give them all these rules to say, you know, I really just want you subservient and miserable. Uh, that's not the point of being a parent. The point of being a parent is precisely because I want you to flourish, we have some house rules, okay? If you choose to break them, there will be consequences. The consequences may come directly from me, you know, in the form of a spanking or a scolding or a sit in your room for three hours or whatever, particular, I don't know. Or it may come from the fact that, like I said, the, the natural consequences of sticking your fork in the power outlet, okay? So the bottom line is God has created, he gives us gifts, he wants us to have fullness of life, and he says there are just a, there's a ground rule here. And if you want, we can summarize it in the word obey. Not to obey because I'm a tyrant, obey because this is the path to your flourishing. Okay, if you look in the Old Testament, actually it's interesting because out of all of the different rules, I think there were 613 rules, if I'm not mistaken, or 633, I forget which. 613 rules, I believe, in the Old Testament that the Jewish people had to follow. This was after Moses. In the beginning, it was easy. There was one. After we kept sinning, okay, it got more complicated. So if you don't want rules, don't sin. Okay? But always, always there was, a, there was a, a hierarchy of that which is most important. And the same concept keeps appearing over and over again. When Moses gave the, first, the Ten Commandments, what was the first commandment? I'm watching wheels spinning. It's like the hourglass sign when you have one of those old computers and the Microsoft people trying to remember the first commandment. How many commandments are there again? Ten commandments. <laughs> okay. First commandment. I am the Lord your God. Therefore, my personal translation, I am God. There's only one God. Let me be God. It's not you. Okay? Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. That is the first commandment. Then the next chapter in Deuteronomy comes the commandment that when the scribes and Pharisees challenged Jesus, they said, out of all the rules, what is the most important one? This is what Jesus said. Shema, O Israel. Listen, Israel. The Lord your God is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then Jesus added, and your neighbors yourself. All of this keeps coming back to this one point. 
Let God be God. It's in your own self-interest to let God be God. Stay in your lane. Okay, why am I going over all this? Because in the gospel, what do we see happening? Jesus has just been baptized. We didn't read that in the gospel, but that's what happened immediately before this passage. And when he's baptized, the skies open, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and a voice comes out and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately in St. Mark's gospel, it's very graphic. And actually the word is like he, this, the Holy Spirit hurled Jesus into the desert. Like he picked him up like a ball and threw him into the desert. It's like, get out there now. The very next thing that happens is the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the desert, according to St. Matthew here, to be tempted. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, what happens? Why does Jesus go into the desert? What is the desert? The desert is a place where you get purified. And that is basically what the purpose of Lent is. That's why we have Lent. It is a place to get purified. In the desert, you don't have cell phones. And if you do, they don't work. There are no towers. (laughs) There's basically... It is silence. And you are almost naked. You are vulnerable. And the only thing you have to think about is self-reflection and God. It's a, the desert is a place where you come face to face with yourself and with God. All the other distractions, all the noise gets put behind us. Lent is called to be a desert. That's why we make sacrifices. That's why we say extra prayers. It is a space to purify ourselves, to put ourselves in God's presence, to cut out the noise, to make sacrifices, because by overcoming ourselves and things that are difficult, we're clearing space for God to be God so that he can listen to us. But interestingly enough, in Lent, as in this gospel, frequently we will encounter temptation, and that's not bad. You will never overcome temptation if you don't face it. Most of us fall from sin to sin to sin to sin to sin because, frankly, we don't take the time to face it. We just kind of live with it. It's just part of us. I know I do this. I know I really shouldn't. But, you know, I'm kind of, I've made peace with it. I'm good. And Lent is a time, precisely through, by means of this austerity, that God is going to allow maybe your temptations to kind of come out to the fore. And that's not a bad thing. Because in Lent, if we live it well, in a, in, more, in a more intense prayer, offering up certain sacrifices, acts of charity, then we will be fortified to face the temptations. Now, in Jesus' case, what happens? The devil approaches him, and the first words are, if you are the Son of God. It's curious. Just before he had been baptized, God declares, you are my beloved son. Satan obviously heard that. He says, oh, okay, that's what If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Bottom line, if you're the son of God, use your power to take care of yourself. You're starving. Use your power for yourself. If you're really the son of God, you can do what you want. Stop obeying. In other words, get out of your lane. Don't let God be God. If you're really the son of God, then you can do whatever you want and it's okay. 
And Jesus roundly rejects that. He says, one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's that mean? Obedience. Second temptation, if you're the son of God, this one sounds kind of weird. Brings him up to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. Throw yourself down in front of everybody because God will send his angels to support you. It's like, what a weird temptation. What's he getting at? Basically, if you're the son of God, make a spectacle. God will publicly save you. Do not take the path of the cross. Do not take the path of humiliation. If you're really the son of God, make a big splash. And everyone will follow you. Take the easy path. It's another way of saying, don't follow God's will, which is going to be hard. Do the easy thing. Do it your way. Forget about God's will. There's a better way. And Christ again tells him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, Satan tempts him with the weirdest temptation of all. If he really believes he's the son of God, why would he possibly say this? Brings him up to the top of a mountain, shows him all the kingdoms, and says, all these I will give you if you prostrate yourself and worship me. Now, if you really believe this is the son of God, how will you expect him to worship you, okay? But he does. Now, why is that attractive at all? Which person in this church really, aside from the people in the Emmys apparently, really thinks it's interesting or attractive to worship the devil? Well, what he's doing is he's saying, I control the power, all the money, all the kingdoms, all the economic power, political power, military power, everything. It's mine, and I will give it to you. The reality is, In our world, how many times do people sell themselves to the devil to gain power? One way or another, in business, in politics, in fame, whatever, how many times do we sell ourselves to gain influence? That's what Satan's saying to Christ here. I will give you not just some, I will give you all of it if you sell yourself to me. And it's the same temptation a third time. Forget God's plan. Do things your way. You get to choose. It's the same temptation as the Garden of Eden over and over again. And Christ responds, The Lord your God shall you worship. Him alone shall you serve. And with that the devil left him. And interestingly enough, angels came and ministered to Jesus. He went through the test, and then God rewards him. He says, okay, now comes the banquet and and all the good stuff. What is the lesson for us? Okay, first of all, we are at the beginning of Lent. First of all, well, first of all, God wants you to flourish. Part of our flourishing is going to involve Lent. Lent is not just so you can be miserable for 40 days. Lent is... It's like doing the exercise. If you do enough exercise, you start to feel good. The first couple times you go running or lifting weights, you may feel like, why am I doing this to myself? And then as you get in better shape, you feel the benefits, right? Lent is like that. God wants us to flourish. And he's saying, if you really want to be able to flourish, then we have to purify ourselves of all the things that are out there that prevent us from doing that. And what does flourishing consist of? Ultimately, it consists of 
letting God be God in our lives. If we do that, to the extent that we do that, we will have joyful, happy, fulfilled lives, even in the middle of some purifications. So if anybody here wants to be happy, I recommend you have a nice solid Lent. If you don't want to be happy, do whatever you want. In the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit.